from Australia, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mitch Maroney Show. Here's your host, Mitch Maroney. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Today, we've got Mark Harrell. He's a business broker in Perth and a friend of mine. And I'm looking forward to diving into the business brokering world with him. G'day, Mark. How are you? Good, Mitch, and hope you're all well. It's crazy times, so we, we do the best we can in home offices or isolated offices, but I think we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. So I suppose tell the listeners a bit about yourself and what you do and, and that side of yeah. it. For sure. So my background was originally in economics and business intelligence. So I was very focused on quantifying businesses, analyzing businesses, and through that data, trying to improve businesses. And then naturally, um, that led to me wanting to run my own business. So I did a number of startups, mainly in the tech space. So network security, that was something I was interested in, cybersecurity. Ended up listing one of those businesses. So that was a, an achievement. But During that listing process, I also learned a lot about capital raising, how to position your business for investment or how to even to position your business to sell. And then that organically led me after I um, listed, I took a few months off, cleared my head and then jumped back into corporate advisory and business brokering. And something I enjoy is I can um, look at all different types of businesses apply some of the skills and experience that I've had to that business and position them in the best light to get the best return for the owner. Beautiful, beautiful. So on that side of things, so you listed the business. How was your experience with that? Yeah, I think that the greatest skill set I can now give other businesses wanting to list is learn from some of the mistakes I made. There's a, and when it comes to capital raising, you will not be the smartest person in the room. And there's people that are miles ahead of you in that game of how you know structuring deals work. Uh, you pay this back, you get this back, that escalates to this, that turns to that. And, and we raised money in Australia and the US and, and in New York, there's another world of how they can oh. structure a deal. Yeah, that would be next level. That would, yeah, there were the big boys over there. And there's a little bit of shock and awe as well. Like you're just this guy from Perth and then you're standing in a building, you know, like 50 flights up looking over New York and you're trying to pitch your business to a panel of like eight people staring you down. It's a, yeah, Yeah. it was fun. It was fun though. And so I think those skills are what I bring to the table for a company wanting to raise money or wanting to exit and then to a lesser degree that, that applies to the business brokering because you are still trying to sell and position a business. Yeah, yeah, true. I suppose from a business broking side of things, it's rather than just getting investors that will own a portion, it's more selling the whole thing. So they'll own 100%. A complete right. sale, correct. And yeah, complete sale. So, it's interesting though, Mitch, that even though it's a, a complete sale and you're not trying to list on a stock market or trying to bring a shareholder in, the fundamentals still apply. Whether if it's a $200,000 pool cleaning business or if you are doing a $120 million listing, mm. the fundamentals are still the same. Like, you've got to have good yeah. Yeah. business. Yeah, true, true. You've got to have good business, good product. And then, yeah, I suppose it's just the shareholder number goes up. So That's right. It's, it's, more it's zeros. complicated. And, and, and it's more like herding cats rather than herding one big cat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. With the, like, dealing with, I assume you listed on the ASX? Yes. Yep. Yeah. How was that process? I've never personally done it, so I'm just Yeah, it's obviously lots of companies have listed on the ASX, right? So there's a tried and tested path of how to list on the ASX. It comes down to just a truckload of compliance. Mm -hmm. And what's also quite interesting is there's a lot of people along the process who offer particular services. So you might have this big piece of salami at the start, but as you keep slicing all the slices off along the way, everyone gets fed. So it's mainly compliance. It's a huge compliance task and it's obviously full and continuing disclosure. Yeah, which makes sense. Is there, I suppose, a portion of your experience with it where companies would take on, say, a shareholding percentage 
for assisting or is it more? Oh, yeah. yeah, very common. And the reason that's common is in a lot of the startups, and although the, the barrier now to list is higher, as in you actually have to raise more money now than spend $5 million. at the mm-hmm. time, those companies, it was the next step for them to get that cash injection that they needed. So a lot of them weren't sitting on truckloads of cash. So a lot of the way you get things done are with like facilitation shares, people will do fee-for-service and have options converted to equity, even employee incentive option programs. So as you bring on more people, you might not be able, like say I brought you on as the CFO, Mitch, I, I couldn't afford your extraordinary salaries at the start. So I would give you, I can pay you this much, and I'll give you options in the company. So you do end up handing out a lot of equity, mainly because you may not be have those cash reserves to fund everything as you need to at that time. Yeah, and that makes sense. And, I mean, obviously providing it's a valid, decent company and stuff. From the other side, I mean, if you're kind of getting the shares pretty cheap, you potentially could make a decent capital gain along the way as well. Yeah, and there's also a risk there as well. When you hand out these shares and these options, normally you've got to be quite careful in how you value a business up front just so that it's not overvalued and then there's no, there's no win for anyone else once it hits the exchange. But also if you're handing out bucket loads of shares and options at, at one cent as an example and the, the thing's 20 cents, you're going to have a lot of downward pressure on that stock because people are happy to sell at 10 or eight or seven and still make seven times, eight times. So, yeah, Yeah. it's interesting. You just have to have good advice and good support if you're going down that path. Yep, yep. That's interesting. Yeah, as I said, I've never – I haven't listed anything as yet. I think it would be an interesting experiment to do, to be honest. (laughs) But You don't do it too many times. (laughs) There's a lot of stress. So what would – I suppose your big learning things, you said for people to learn from your mistakes, what do we sort of – So even to bring it back more towards the business brokering side, even as well, you know, like even when, even if you're running your own business and you see an offer, that old phrase, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is, you know, you know, a pitfall there. So you've just got to think realistically, what is my business worth? Realistically, what would someone want to pay for this? business and also acknowledge that people will pay, certainly in the world of business brokering, people will pay for what the business has done. I hear a lot of times like people say to me, oh, if a young person purchased this business, they could do this, this, this and this and the sky's the limit. Well, cool. And they'll probably buy that because they do believe that, but you're not going to get any value for what you could have done, you know? So people say, look, if you grew this business, it could be worth Two million dollars, yeah, but it's not now. Yeah, and that's what exactly like you haven't so, done the legwork for that two mil from what you're saying. So it's, it's clearly not worth it. Yeah. That's right, and it's just um, so you've got to be realistic where your business is. And a lot of people, and especially with what's happened at the moment, has been a great opportunity if you own a business. And it sounds a bit strange, but businesses that we've had just about to list who have just or have recently listed have used this time to do things like, you know, sort their leases out, sort their employee agreements out. If the place needed a lick of paint, do that. Get your accounts organised, your stock. You've got to be organised because if someone, and go back, I was talking about a $100 million listing, but whoever buys a $250,000 business, in most likelihood, that $250,000 to the buyer is all they've got. Yeah. So they're putting their eggs all in this one basket. So they will do due diligence and they will check just as hard as you do perhaps on a an ASX listing. So don't try and hide anything or don't fudge anything because that does come out. It does. And that's never a good look. Like if no. you just upfront and go, look, there's whatever it is, is there. It's not a huge issue, but it's, you know, this is what's happening. I would assume from a buyer point of view, they'll go, okay, sweet. You know, they've been truthful. We can sort of work from there. But if you hide that and they find it, oh, that's not going to go down well. And if there's a, I mean, 
and like loop me back into your world a bit, communication with your accountant as a business owner is key there. Like have the account set up properly, right? Have everything transparent and detailed so that when someone does look through it, they understand, they logically can work their way through it. They understand the numbers. I mean, I've had businesses where they've combined multiple businesses into the one P&L and then they highlight things and go, you got a minus something there. And it may all be true and honest, et cetera, but to the buyer that puts dab in their mind and then they start to get a bit edgy and, and who knows. And it's, it's not the easiest way. Like if for argument's sake, you did have a business and it had a, a couple of businesses trading out of the same legal entity, you know, there's no reason you couldn't have a split profit and loss departmentalized and you can have a consolidated one as well, but you know, you should be able to identify, okay, the Mandra branch is making X amount, the Rockingham's this amount. And not only from a sales point of view, like from a management point of view, and that's what I've said to people quite consistently over the time that have either done it previously through previous accounts or try and do it, is, well, how do you know you're making money? You know, the Mandra branch might make 300000 in profit, for argument's sake, and the Perth branch might lose two hundred grand. So all you see is a hundred grand profit and you go, oh yeah, cool. But you know, you've lost 200 grand in the Perth one. And you know, is that's when you'll go, what's going wrong there? Is it a, you know, is it the growth phase? So we're investing more, whatever. But if you don't have it separate, you're never going to know. You just see the bottom line. So even for not selling it, I just think that's imperative. If you are going to have multiple through the same legal entity. It's just good practice. And then being able to, any potential buyer, being able to readily make the figures available, the stock available, the balance sheet available. You're trying when selling your business to have as few amounts as barriers as possible, right? You want the buyer to look at it and if they need information, if I can just flick it out straight away, it makes the process easier, but also it lets you build momentum. You can keep in touch with the buyer and you can say, look, here are the numbers you requested. As you can see, all in order, it's showing profit here, blah, blah, blah. But and here's the stock. Here's the asset. So if you just bang, 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 being able to reply, it creates a picture of this business knows what it's doing. It's well organized. It's well run. Another tick on the compliance box. 100%. And you'd also, from a buyer point of view, you would trust it more because they clearly already have their ducks in a row. They know what they're doing. They're not like, oh, I'll get back to you. And then a month later, they get back and you go, well, that doesn't look right. And then, yeah it, yeah, it goes cold and you just move on. You know, other opportunities right. will arise. And, yeah. and if there is a weakness or if there is an area where there's a perceived problem, I always highlight it early on in the discussions with the buyer. Just get on the front foot, address the elephant in the room, whatever it is. You know, it might be there's a truckload of employee benefits still owed or, you know, they've accrued Joe's annual service for like the last 40 years or anything like that. Just get on the front foot and go, look, the owners are happy to negotiate on this. We can work this out. It's when people discover things, it's that aha moment, then you're in trouble. Yeah. And then even from that, it puts doubt in their mind. You've been hiding stuff. What else have you been hiding? Even if you're writing anything else, but they'll instantly think, well, I found this, what else is there? And they could even use it from a negotiating point of view of, you know, pushing the price down further. Certainly not going to push it up, is it? No, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that obviously is very important from a sales point of view and also just normal operations. You You need to be able to know. Another really common thing which kills the value of a business is cash not going through the books, right? So I understand that it's a reality in the world that some businesses have a cash component and their FPOS machine may not have worked a particular day. But I can tell you, I have never seen an occasion where the cash component of the business was realized even a fraction of the amount in the sale price. So if someone has put $100,000 cash through that business, you will get nowhere near that when it comes to actually selling because A, people don't believe it. B, people are sceptical of how the business is run if there's that much cash. And there's a fear of the ATO, quite naturally, that they're going to come knocking on your door. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's obviously from a compliance point of view, They're supposed to put it all through the books, but the reality is people take cash, they don't report it through the books. And to all the people that do that, yeah, you're getting a, what's an illegal 
benefit now because you're not paying tax on it. But ultimately, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot because the sales aren't going to be there. So if you want to go sell it, you know, if you're taking a thousand bucks a week out in cash for argument's sake, that means your sales are down 52 grand to what they should be, not only to do with the ATO risks, but, you know, no buyer is going to look at it and go, okay, well, this is what the financials say. This is what the tax return says. And then you reckon you've taken another 50 grand Mm -hmm. cash. Let's add that on top. That's not how it works. So that money's just lost money, exclude from thing, assume it never happened. What does the actual lodgement state is the sales? And and then they work off of that. And and you'll also, because we run off the way we value businesses, in a lot of ways, it's a multiplier of net profit. So you're not hurting yourself just on the one year's worth of fudging the books. If your business is valued at a three times net multiplier of net profit, as an example, you've hurt yourself threefold. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if it's 50 grand you've taken, it's hurt 150. That's right. Yeah, for the saving of 30%, say 15,000 in tax, you've yep. just cost yourself 150,000. Yeah, so it's, um, it's one of those real short-sighted ways people run business. And when, if you're thinking of selling your business and you do have a, a large cash component, just as you're prepping your business to sell, you've got to start running things you have to run through the books. You just won't get the value and you're breaking the law. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And yeah, I mean, that's the main one is you're breaking the law. But the reality is most people, you know, do that risk. But if you say, look, if you do keep doing this, you're not going to make 150 grand at the end of it on the sale, then people will think twice. And I would even be inclined, I mean, this is just my personal one on it, so um, let me know your thoughts. But if, say, there's a business that is doing a lot of cash, for whatever reason, could be a kebab place, it could be whatever. It could just be a high cash industry. When you do the sales, obviously put it through the till, etc. get the money, bank the money, and then when you do buy stuff, do it all through the bank because that way, yeah, the till says you did X sales, you've got the cash, you can prove that cash has then entered the bank, which will match the sales. So it just adds another level of accuracy and trust us mm-hmm. in that cash yeah. because we all know that you know software in theory can put anything through it so if you had it yeah. you could put cash through the roof in that till but if you don't deposit it or anything it's you're relying purely on that till so that's right yeah if you're depositing it it gives that till that cash takings a substantiated here's the money so I mean, if you think about restaurant businesses as an example or, or, you know, like food or things like that, if you've got a large cash amount going through there, but you've still got to purchase the stock to produce that meal, right? So even then, on the actual figures, your margins look terrible as well. You look like 100 grand's worth of revenue, you've got $70,000 worth of stock, you know, that you've had to purchase to make the meals. Yeah, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it shoots yourself in the foot. So it hurts on so many levels and it just keeps hurting as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So to all the listeners out there, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. Or if you plan on selling your business, get your stuff sorted before you sell it. Exactly. At least a couple of years because they'll want to see a couple of years of trading and stuff to sell it. So Yeah, we don't want to see a hundred grand and then a month ago bounce up to like a hundred and fifty, then two hundred, two fifty, because th- that also causes alarm bells. That looks very sus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so from a sales point of view, what else? Say you got a business looking to prepare for to sell, 12, 18 months. What yep. advice would you give them? Yeah, for sure. So um obviously think your accounts the most important part when selling the business. So people fall in love with the business. They're like, oh, this is what I've always wanted to do. It's my dream business, yada, yada. It's very rare to get a cash buyer who can afford the business solely in cash. Therefore, they're going to have to get finance of some sorts. Now, vendor finance recently has been quite popular because the banks have tightened their lending and and we can talk about that a bit later if you want and all the pros and cons of that. But if you're going to a bank, the bank are not investors in the business with you. So they're not going to fall in love with the business. They are providing you money to purchase a business and they see that as a financial transaction. So your accounts are the most important thing accurate stock levels, make sure all the staff are on correct employment contracts, 
Also, if possible, and it's not always possible, but make sure you know that all their leave and their sick leave or whatever you've got is all reasonable. Like I jokingly said, you know, old Joe who's got 30 years of annual leave crewed up. Try and get those things tidied and nice. Presentation, just like if you're selling your home, try and have the thing organised, understand where things are because you're going to have to walk people around that business, show them around that business. And then it's just normal common sense things like, um, hey, have your stock levels right, customers right, have your um, debtors in order, creditors in order, just common business sense. But accounts are really, really important. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And I suppose if you did everything best practice, just in general, assuming you're not selling selling the business, it would tick those columns. So yep. best practice, keep the accounts right. Make sure your employees are on good employment contracts. Make sure your stock is what the stock actually is and you're mm-hmm. tracking it so you know what's actually in there. All of which are best practice stuff anyway, which in theory you should do. And if you've got all those facilities in place, like you said, when you come to sell it, it's going to be so much easier and you'll be able to just provide the information. The buyer asks what the stock is, you can send a stock list and not just a, a, correct me if I'm wrong, I would assume this would be the case. We've got 50 grand of stock. I, as a buyer, would go, okay, well, what is it? You know, yeah, yeah, you've got stock of 50 grand, but what is 50 grand of stock? If you can provide- Is it current stock, Mitch? Yeah. Or is it stock that just sat on the shelves for the last 30 years so there's no value at all to it? That, exactly. that sort of stuff. Exactly. You know, if you can provide me a report or spreadsheet or whatever that has a detailed, you know, we've got, I don't know, 100 pens at this much mm-hmm. is this and laptops at this is this, etc. that provides way more assurity of what stock is because you can go, okay, well, th- like it's fully broken down, you know exactly how much you've got, you know the price on all of them as well. It's just not just yep. a nice round figure that they've just thrown at you. And, and once again, it gives me comfort that you know how to run your business yes. so that I'm buying something that's being well run. And yeah. another thing that you've got to, that's really important is good dialogue with your landlord because yeah. if you're selling, if you're thinking of selling a business or in the process of selling the business and you've got a good dialogue with your landlord so they're aware that you're looking at exiting to understand the landlord's point of view are they happy just to assign the lease to the new tenant will there be a new lease required because in many cases the buyer will ask for a rent reduction without doubt they'll go oh rent's too high and if you blindside your landlord those things can just slow down and become just a terrible churn of I'm not moving, I'm moving, that sort of thing. So just with most things in life, just open dialogue and explain openly what you're planning on doing. Yeah, exactly. And to all participants, directly or indirectly, obviously the buyer and the seller need to have the dialogue. But yeah, like you said, the commercial leaseholder, they'll be involved, potentially suppliers and that side of things, they'll need to be involved. And then on the assumption it does go through sale transitions over, the customers, which this new buyer has purchased, they will need to be involved. They will need to get comfortable with the person. Obviously, depending on what industry it is, some of them than others, I would assume, say, retail, for example, depending on what it is, you can have a close relationship with the retail outlet. But if it's quite a transient one, you wouldn't have Mm -hmm. super close with everybody. But for argument's sake, you're buying an accounting firm, you know, our clients trust us personally. So my clients trust Mitchell Maroney. They don't instinctively trust Joe Blow that has just bought it. So to be able to retain those clients, the Joe Blow that's got to have bought it, and generally there'll be retention clauses and that side of things, but they have to go out, they have to be able to show their worth and sell themselves to the client because it is a free market. So if I did sell to Joe Blow and, for example, Mark's a client and Mark doesn't like Joe Blow, you're just going to go elsewhere. There's nothing holding you to me except for like our personal relationship and rapport. So that's a big thing, I think, from a once it has settled, because there is a lot going on. Anybody that has bought a business, it's a a fun time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) those sorts of things you can't neglect because if you do, you've suddenly lost half your client base because they don't know you, they don't like you, they whatever, you know. And if you're proactive, 
and talking to them, going out, see them, whatever, depending on the industry, then that will mean the amount you've paid, you'll actually keep in theory. Yeah, and that's what you want. If you're dropping, like you said, 250000 you want 250000 of worth. You don't want to pay 250000 and then it's worth one hundred and twenty-five. Correct. And, and the thing is also because people are emotional by nature and, and, you know, and want to feel belonged and loved and all of that sort of stuff, we have actual emails that we provide as part of when we work with a, a seller of how to tell the staff that you're thinking of selling your business, how to tell your customers that you're thinking of selling. Because, um, well, take for me, say I purchased your accounting firm, Mitch, and, and you hadn't told your staff and I've come then come waltzing in and, and they don't like me and I have people leave, etc. That's also detrimental because the whole flow of how the business works now collapses. So you've got to be mindful of people's feelings and we go to a lot of effort to help sellers position their business for sale. Yeah, and I think that's an area, I'm going to crap on accountants for a second, <laughs> <laughs> that a lot of accountants and advisors in that respect, not so much the sales because obviously you guys do deal with that, but a lot of accountants I've found, we're very analytical and mm-hmm. we go, well, the numbers say this. Yes, they do. And that's a massive portion of it. But there is an emotional side. If you're going to pull your life savings into something, the numbers will say one thing, but there's this whole other area you have to consider as well. And I know a lot of accountants do sort of struggle a little bit with that because they want to just stay in the account side yeah. but the reality is it is a, a marriage between the two so mm. you know, the accounts have to say that it's viable and it's good and the client has to be invested and love the business to do it otherwise yeah the accounts look good but the purchaser hates it and it goes to shit mm. or they want to do it they go do it and the accounts are shit and it goes under so it, just, it needs to be a balance of the two it's really interesting as well because I've spoken to people who are real estate agents, friends of mine, etc., and and we share a few war stories and you know things like that. And selling a business in a lot, unless it's the family home for the last sixty years, but selling a business is normally more emotional than selling the home because they're so attached and they put so much effort into creating that business that they, in many ways, don't see it as numbers, dollars and cents. They see it as an extension of themselves. They put their own personality into it, their love, their brand, everything like that. So I've had so many people, sellers crying before they list because, and it may not just because the business is struggling and it may be time to exit or whatever or health or whatever, but they're so emotional about the selling process. And then when we've sold the business, obviously they're happy that the business is sold and they've got their money, but there's a real sense of loss as well. So yeah, it's a very emotional transaction. It is on that side of things. I actually was talking to a friend the other day about it and not just about that, but in valuing businesses. And we were actually discussing when to pull the pin. So the negative side of it. But I suppose it would come into the similar argument with the selling of the business. How do you find people react when you tell them how much it's actually worth? Because everybody's going to think it's worth more. And my argument was it's when you tell somebody that their business isn't worth anything and they're going to have to go under and they've been doing it 10 years, it's like telling their firstborn kids ugly. So Mm. it's a rough conversation to have. You've got to have it, but how do you find it, uh, obviously, on the sales side of things? Because I assume it would be normal that people would think their business is worth significantly more than it really is. What's interesting on that is the ones that are going really, really well, generally, they undervalue their business, especially trades and like painting or suppliers or things like that. The ones that are really run well, when I tell them what I think I would market their business at, are surprised and they were, oh, I didn't think it was worth that much. And that's mainly because they're so entrenched in the business and they're working and growing it, etc. They go, oh, we've actually created quite a bit of value here. The ones that are doing the job of providing the owner with some income. And it's amazing the amount of times that the business generates exactly the amount of income the owner needs. So that there doesn't seem to be a growth factor there. And if they are a little bit distressed or they're looking at exiting, they usually internally have done their maths on what they need to get 
out of it. And then that's where there's usually the gap. Like someone thinks, gosh, if I could get 500000 for this business, I could pay this off, do that, walk away and start again. And then they almost convince themselves in, well, that's what I want for the business because that's what I need to move on. And then that's where you get the mismatch of. Yeah, you know, that's and the way we, worth 150 and they're saying half a mil and... Yeah. And we usually go on, um, in there we do, we have to be mindful that someone's probably put the last 10 years of their life into there. So we like to explain quite transparently what other similar businesses have recently sold for, what businesses in that sort of industry, what sort of multiplier you can expect. And ultimately we work for the, the seller, right? Yeah. So I could put any, I could put a price on for whatever you want for the business, right? But eventually we've got to sell it. So I would say that we get interest at this price and that holds up because other businesses have sold for about this. Yours is a bit better here, struggles a little bit there. I think that's a fair price. And then I leave it with them and I just, I don't do the hard sell there because people have to then do all their own calculations and all their own what-if scenarios and, and then loop back and go, okay, we can advertise it for this much. Yes, yeah, and that makes complete sense. It's interesting though, actually hearing you say that the businesses that are doing well really undervalue themselves. Because I have had a couple of clients, of which are now mutual clients with yourself, no. that they have been running a practice for many years. They've got staff. It's a solid practice. They've got some holes in their side of things, but you know, all in all, it's a solid practice. And they wanted out and they literally just said, well, I might just shut the doors and, and yeah. go get a job. And I said, well... Obviously, I mean, you could do that. I wouldn't recommend it, but you could. And then I said, look, get in touch with Mark. I think they're actually going through Tony. Yes, correct. Yep. One of our other brokers. Yeah. To discuss the situation and through discussions with you guys, the determined prices, to my knowledge, over 200000 it was listed mm-hmm. for. And on that assumption, even if let's say, it, I doubt it would get knocked down this far, but even if it got knocked down 50 and it went for 150, the client is 150,000 better off than they originally were thinking because they yeah. were going to shut the door. So that's also something to consider is a lot of businesses do think, yeah, well, this pays my wage, it does all this. And as they grow and then they don't see the inherent value in what they've created and you can sell that. You know, obviously some industries are easier than others, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. but... If you've got a trading business, Mitch, there's value. Exactly, exactly. And I would assume, you know, you've been trading for, say, 10 years. It's a common known brand. You know, all these things build that goodwill. Mm. So if you can get something for it, why not do it? Uh, and it's interesting that you say that as well because a lot of a lot of people think it is worthless and they would just close the business down. But as long as it, I mean, some businesses require such level of internal knowledge or qualifications or, or that, that it makes it difficult because there's not a wide audience. But if you had a, a business where you were just, even, I don't know, uh, handyman maintenance or something like that, you know, website presence, vans, some tools, those sorts of things, there is value for that. Very. Relatively unskilled as in you don't need a, a qualification or degree, you just need a bit of insurance. Yeah. Hop out there, you'd be able to sell that type of business quite, quite easily. Exactly. Whereas if you're doing... I don't know, astrophysics, yeah. whatever. It's a pretty small yeah. pool of how many people could do that. Yeah. So, I'd actually call up the potential buyers individually. Exactly, exactly. You can just Google them and it would be, there's five. That's right. <laughs> so on the same premise that I just said with the client that did undervalue their business mm-hmm. and just wanted to close it, I did have another one that similar situation. Now, they actually bought the business. They bought a, a it was a florist for fifteen thousand. Mm-hmm. Now, said florist made fifty to sixty thousand a year. It had stock of twelve thousand and a ute that was worth about three. So mm-hmm. the fifteen, to be honest, when we actually did the calculations, was pretty much the stock and the motor vehicle. There wasn't. Yep. They didn't charge for goodwill. So, you know, I said, it's a decent buy. Like, you're, it's a well established brand. You've got the lease. You've, like, everything's there. 
yeah. you walk in and you haven't actually really had to pay anything for the brand. It's you bought the stock off of them and a car. So that's the values. Exactly. So of all the purchases, that was a pretty easy. Yeah, that's pretty much worth it. Now they traded for twelve months and. They did it. They still, it was pretty consistent. It did grow slightly off the year before, but nothing insane. But the big difference was after 12 months, she came to us and said, look, I want out. And it wasn't because she wanted to retire, anything like that. She just didn't want to run a business. So that's another area which we'll go into in a minute potentially. But, you know, running a business isn't just rocking up and in this case selling flowers. You have to do the books. You have to do advertising. You pay wages. You like you do the entire thing. You deal with HR issues. So she just didn't want to deal with that. She just wanted a wage, rock up, do her work, leave. And that's fine. That's what she wanted. So this was before we actually got connected. And so there was another guy came down and had a look at it for price-wise and stuff. And he thought it'd be up 30-ish. 20 to 30, you could probably get for it pretty conservatively with, it was a similar stock value and, and all the rest there. Now, she looked at it and because she just wanted out, it was going to cost, I think it was a thousand bucks or something in advertising and she didn't want to do it. So one of her staff wanted to buy it. Staff bought it for exactly what she bought it for, mm-hmm. so 15,000. So she's exited, not making a capital gain, not making a capital loss, just break even, which is fine. But I feel like she did leave something on the table, however big or small, you know, that could have been. But there was no sale of goodwill. There was no understanding of, you know, for argument's sake, their website had really good traffic, good sales through it. That didn't come into it at all. It was how much stock do we have and the vehicle price and then just sold it for that. So I suppose that's the flip side of it where somebody just wanted out and yeah, just, yep, let me leave. So on, on your that, business isn't for everyone though, is it? No, exactly, exactly. And that's another thing that I find a lot of people that get into business underestimate how much other stuff you have to do. So yeah. you might be the best plumber in the world and you can fix anything, but can you do your taxes? Can you do your book work? Can you even advertise and get clients. Yeah. That's in accounting, that's a area which it look, it's getting better, but I have said it many times at accounting conferences and stuff. A lot of accountants will get their degree, get some experience, know what they're doing accounting wise. And because the public are required by law to do tax returns, there's kind of a instant demand for our work. Mm. So they'll just go hang a shingle, start their business and go from there. Now, they might be amazing accountants, but they're all about the figures. They don't know how to sell themselves. They don't know how to get clients in. Even when they're in, they don't instill confidence in them, all sorts of stuff. And I think that that's really a shame because it does cost like the business side of things, you know, and then you've got other businesses, which I mean, I would argue we're more, yeah, we're good at what we do, et cetera. But you also, we're decent at advertising. We get that rapport. You, you do the other areas of the business as well. Yeah. And that's why I believe we've grown so fast is doing those little things, doing the stuff that will get the trust. And if you do right by one person, they will tell five of their friends and then everybody comes to you. Yeah. Whereas like I even had a case of a accountant. He was He's not in business anymore, but he opened a business locally, client of mine now went to him and he sat there for three hours and his wife, who was a receptionist, was walking in and out, taking personal phone calls. They had a domestic in the middle of the (laughs) meeting and were yelling at each other and it's just not professional. So if you're a customer and you go in for advice and in this case, they had a self-managed soup fund. They were buying a property. They were There was all sorts of stuff happening. Yeah. It was quite high level. Like There was a bit going on. doesn't instill confidence when your accountant is yelling at their wife in the room when you're there as well, you know. So like, <laughs> that was a horror story. 
So they did that meeting and then the next day booked in with me and I went through it all with them and they're still clients to this day because... Right. Credit to you. Exactly. I didn't yell at my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Not yelling. That's right. (laughs) But, yeah, so there's a lot of that. Or I also try and go off of the belief of, obviously, I do the job, but try and educate them on what you're doing. So in this exact case... They went up, it was a firm in Joondalup that they actually set it all up with and they charged them about 11 grand. They had entities left, right, centre, but they didn't understand why they have entities left, right and centre and why it costs 11 grand. They've just got got it and within five minutes, and this was actually what really sold them to me and the funny thing was I didn't actually do it in a sales tech. I was more talking to myself. They were just (laughs) in the office at that point. As I'm going through the paperwork, I go, oh, okay, so this entity's here. So this one here will hold the property because the self-managed super fund can't get secured finance. Like I was more just mapping it out in my own head. And they literally go, oh, is that why we have that? (laughs) No point prior, anybody said, this is why you have this. And, you know, if you're dropping that sort of money, I I would have just assumed that you would do that. But... Yeah, anyway, so that's <laughs> a few interesting stories from the accounting world. Now, so getting a business ready for sale, you know, books in, in good nick, wages, et cetera, everything pretty much best practice as much as possible. Now, if somebody's buying a business, what sort of things should they look at? Yeah, now also from the buyer's perspective, you also have to get yourself ready for purchasing a business because on a lot of businesses, the seller will request that the buyer actually tells a little bit about themselves. So, and the main reason is, can they afford to buy this business, right? So I don't have any money at all, but I wouldn't mind buying a $2 million business and I've never run a business before and I've never done this. So there is a buyer profile that usually gets filled out on businesses above a a certain value or at the seller's request. So the buyer, if they can um, get their financial position into a good place as well. So if they're thinking of using, you know, equity in the home to help secure a loan, have all that tidied, speak to your bank that you're about to look at purchasing a business. This is what you've got in mind because even experiencing, so all of a sudden I want to buy a pastry business. Well, the bank's going to look down on that because Mark, you've never been a baker or anything before. So what makes you think you'll be able to run this business? So make sure that you're You've got your house in order as in if you're going to need finance, have that sorted, et cetera, et cetera. But really, when you go and inspect a business, you've just got to, it's just the, the fundamentals, as we've, I think we've mentioned a bit. If you're asking for information and it's taking the seller a week or the broker on behalf of the seller a week to get back to you, well, either the broker's not doing a very good job or he or she doesn't have the information from the seller to give to the buyers. So if you're seeing lots of delays or if you're saying don't, if people saying, oh, don't worry about that, um, you can look at that later, those sorts of sniff tests is what rings the alarm bells, right? And so it's obvious you're doing DD, you want answers to the questions you're asking. And if you're going to be paying a lot of money for a business or, or a lot of money to yourself for a business, you're entitled to ask as many questions as you like. Yeah. So and it's up to the seller and the broker to be able to provide the answers that meet your needs. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. At what point would you normally get the seller and the broker together? And the, the seller and the buyer? Uh, the buyer. Probably. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so um, normally, so what? one of the important roles of a broker also is to filter a lot of the inquiries so that the seller can still run their business as normal, right? So now the broker and the seller will have an agreement that, look, let me know all inquiries that you get. And that might be because they're worried about other people in the industry inquiring about their business or whatever, in which case it's very simple in an email. We've had a new inquiry. Do you know this person? Are you okay if we proceed? Or some just go, I don't care, just just sell it, right? So the broker initially acts as that filter. Then we say we have 10 inquiries and we get it down to that there's three genuine inquiries. They've signed an NDA. They've answered a few questions. So they are in a position to purchase a business. They have a bit of experience in the business. They've got the numbers. And the next step, normally when the seller meets the buyer, it's the inspection of the business. And the broker needs to be there during that meeting, 
only because the sellers got you to help sell their business and negotiate the best deal. So the buyer, without a doubt, is going to start to talk about price, what do you want, et cetera, like that. And a good broker then can just diffuse that conversation in a rude way, continue with the inspection of the business, ask the constructive questions, and then the broker then can loop back with the buyer and start negotiating price and why a certain value is being asked for here and why the seller believes it's worth that much. So you're basically trying to let the seller run their business as normal with as few interruptions as possible and to do all the negotiating and parts that a lot of people find uncomfortable to do. Yes, yep, that makes sense. Even one part of it, which I personally put weight in this, I mean, it would depend on the situation, but if all the figures stack up, everything's stacking up and I'm meeting the seller, there's a bit of weight in, I suppose, my view of them as a person and stuff. So obviously the figures and stuff, that's main one that you look at. But when you meet them, can you trust them? Do they look shady and like they're going to try and screw you over? Or do they look genuine? Or, you know, it's not a foolproof thing, but I do think that having that gut feel is an important thing as well. Oh, yeah, because when they get to the business to inspect it, they haven't committed to buying yet. In their mind, it checks out on paper, this is something we want to do. As soon as they walk through that door, and normally the broker greets them at the front door, et cetera, saying, look, we've got John and Mary here today. They're the owners, blah, blah, blah. As soon as you walk through that door, it initially has to present as well as it can. It can't look mad. You can't have arguments and domestics in the thing. And that's another situation I've had where similar to the story you've said, and I've had a buyer talking to the sellers, husband and wife, and they start having a bit of a domestic about what they're going to do once they sell. And I'm like, okay, a bit of a banter, but it's not not what we want, right? So I always speak to the sellers as well and just run them through likely questions that the buyer will ask. I'll jump in if anything looks a bit of a curveball or if it's spluttering or or stalling. But they've really just got to show that the business is running well, they understand the business and they're selling for all the right reasons. Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense. And you've got to be comfortable with it. Have you ever had any that are uh, a bit, let's go with taken aback or something the buyer said and the seller has kind of got their back up a bit over it? Because buyers, the the most common situation there is the buyer will just throw out, oh, this isn't worth a million dollars any day of the week, right? They'll just, because they're going in thinking that they're into a negotiation strategy from the first minute in there, right? And then the sellers, A, perhaps a bit shocked at how blunt he is, but then personally take the fact he doesn't think it's worth a million dollars as a personal attack on them. And then they start to talk back and justify why they think it is worth a million. And you just have to diffuse that really quickly. That that would be something you would have to stop real quick. (laughs) Yeah, real fast as everyone gets their back up. Yeah. But it's normally the buyer comes in trying to low ball it from the very first intro. Yes. Yeah. And to be honest, like from their side of things, that's their game is they want it as cheap as possible. So yeah, yeah, I, if you're selling it for a million bucks, they're not going to come in and go, I'll give you 1.3. So yeah, your best offer first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So that's almost an hour. So I've got a couple of real quick questions for you. Just a quick five questions. So what do you think is the most important quality in business to be in business? Oh, just honesty. Just be open and transparent. Yeah, I 100% agree. Honesty yeah. will get you further than anything. And if you lie or get seen to be shady, the bad will, especially, you know, where we are, word of mouth is a massive thing. And if it gets out that you're not to be trusted, that's going to hurt your business a hundredfold over. Yeah. And never be afraid to say bad news as well. Yes. Just go, if there's something bad that has happened or something hasn't gone right, don't be afraid on that. Just lead with it and and take whatever happens. And I find the best avenue for it, and I go on the rip the Band-Aid off, sort of scenario of, yeah, something's happened, whether it has my screw-up for argument's sake, just be open, honest, yep, I screwed up, this is what's happened, this is how we fix it, yada, yada, yada. But don't try and hide it because if they find out, then that's not going to look good. And don't try and pussyfoot around it. You know, it just direct, this is what it is. And look, if they kick up and yell and scream, they yell and scream. But 
never had anybody do that to you. Normally they go, oh, okay, well, thanks for letting us know. Obviously they're not happy with it. But, you know, you've worked out how to fix it. We've now fixed it. It's not a problem. Yep, 100% agree. Now, if you had one superpower, what would it be? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind mind reading. That would be oh, pretty good. I like it. I like it. I like to control situations. So, like, <laughs> as in, I'd like when I organise a meeting or, or interact, I like to know what the outcomes are going to be. So that would be a really good cheat code. It would. It'd be good for um, negotiating as well. Being able to read yeah, what they're thinking before they say it. So. <laughs> I have to promise to only use the powers for good, though, or something like that. Yes. <laughs> if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? As in my younger self before starting ad career-wise, is that what, or just in general? Yeah, just in general, let's say mid-20s mark. Yeah, worry less about other people's thoughts about yourself. Like a lot of, a lot of times you're worried about, how is this going to be perceived? Am I doing the right thing here? Am I doing this right? And I think younger me perhaps worried a bit too much about that, whereas older me would just say, just do it and back your judgment and I'm sure it'll be okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that's a really important thing. I mean, we all ha- have that when we're younger and going into business and stuff, you've got to back yourself in everything because you are the, the top one. So yeah. um, I, I 100% agree. And to be honest, most people, what they think about you, like better terms, is irrelevant. If you yeah. work with honesty and integrity and all the rest, they could think you are the biggest asshole in the world, but it, <laughs> what problem is that to you? You know what I mean? So, and- I think most people are in that conversation with you or in the situation with you because you've done something right previously or you've positioned yourself to be in that conversation or that meeting so then don't all of a sudden worry about what they're thinking just back yourself in and whatever happens happens yep 100 percent agree okay so what is your favorite footy team no oh, the mighty fighting tigers richmond uh, oh, i should have asked at the start that would have just ended the podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what's your favorite book of all time I think my favourite book is probably The Lord of the Rings and I think that a lot of people have that book because it's like your first sort of real book as in you jump from those smaller little books and then you go, right, I'm going to read this Lord of the Rings and you think it's like the most, it's a good piece of literature, but you put it up there as like the greatest book of all time. But I think it's so big when you're reading it and it's... (laughs) It's a big book and I think you reflect back to happy times when you were reading that book, and I think it just it elevates what it is just because of the period that you read it as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, 100% agree, 100% agree. Okay, well, that's the quick five. So thank you, Mark, for this podcast. I think it's been really informative and I think the listeners are, are going to get a lot out of it. So if, you know, any of our listeners want to sell business or whatever, how do they get in touch with you? What's the best way? Yeah, so, um, and even if they're just inquiring about selling a business, you know, I might not be ready, but I might be ready. It doesn't hurt to take the calls or answer the emails. So probably the easiest way is to email me initially, and then that way I can give you a call and talk to you, and that's um, mark.herald at sotcorporate.com, and I'll get you to put a little email in the descriptor or something like that. But even if you're just considering it or even if you're that example of I don't think my business is worth anything, doesn't hurt to find me the email and we can find out and I'll be happy to talk to anyone. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much. And, thank yeah, you. thank you, everybody, for listening and stay tuned for more podcasts to be released in the future. You've been listening to The Mitch Maroney Show. Mitch Maroney Show. Stay tuned for more.